supposed outbreak in a Marburg virus in Equatorial Guinea. I was part of an international team to chart the threat of killer fungi. This is what we found. What a great headline. FDA no longer needs to require animal tests before human drug trials. An enormous deal. I, I can't overstate how big a deal this is. <laughs> the views shared in this episode do not reflect the views of our employers or even ourselves, really. <laughs> There's very much our own opinions. Uh, these are our own. This is the Crossover Connections. I'm Jack Wang. I'm Amanda. Welcome back. And to give us a quick recap of how this podcast has gone so far, it is our journey as two scientists mm-hmm. trying to make sense of the headlines in news, specifically science, technology, and education news to find where everything's connected and really as a professional learning exercise because I'll concede all these headlines are complete news to me and I have to do a lot more reading to make sure I feel comfortable. I've had to do a lot of reading. (laughs) It's a constant exercise of like Mm -hmm. self-flagellation to kind of really (laughs) dig at why it is we're so educated, but we still know so little about everything (laughs) I'm reading. Every time I'm I'm humbled constantly, let's just say that, constantly being humble. My background is in microbiology, so I work in science as a scientist and I'm also a professor at a university. How about you, Amanda? What's your area of expertise? I've got a PhD in cell biology and I currently work as a manager of clinical research. Terrific. So hopefully we pick some articles that are a little bit within our realms of knowledge. This whole exercise only works if we're finding things that are really new and exciting for us to talk about. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a brand new segment to the podcast that we're introducing, which I call The Connect. Articles or topics and updates from previous issues we've already mentioned on the podcast Mm -hmm. that there's now been a new lease on life or there's been more information that's coming in through the presses. And this is the first article, which is the concept or the hashtag. I stumbled on this hashtag on Twitter, actually. Hashtag Ozempic face. Rapid weight loss leads to volume loss in the face, but can also affect the collagen and elastin in the skin. With rapid weight loss, the skin struggles to shrink around your new shape, which means there can be excess facial skin that feels more lax and And for those of you who missed this the first time we talked about it, Ozempic is a drug typically prescribed for diabetics to manage their blood sugar levels. Yeah, type 2 diabetes. TikTok influencers have started to say this is a great weight loss aid. Mm -hmm. Apparently, when you take it, you just don't feel the urge to eat anything ever. And it's a real hack for losing weight very quickly. And so Mm -hmm. the people who are diabetic try to find this drug, but they can't find it anywhere. There's a shortage globally to the point where now people are using it more for weight loss, it seems, than it is for the diabetic treatment that it was originally designed for. And so now this hashtag came about as Epic Face. So now, they're losing weight and now they're crying about how their face looks. Is yeah, that right? Or right. other people are saying that they look gaunt. Not everyone's advertising their own as Epic, mm. right? It's kind of like a secret <laughs> PED, right? You look really gaunt really quickly. <laughs> Do so you have hashtag as epic face? Can you not just be tired these days? Or you post a nice photo of yourself. People, stressed. people just reply with hashtag as epic face. Oh, well, what's going on? Some poor person's stressed out of their mind and someone just tags as epic face. That's right. And you you're, know, you're, actually, I'm stressed out of my mind. I'm stressed out of my mind. Just life is really hard. All right. Just give me a break. I'm Leave not. Alone. I'm not in any. Not any weight loss mm-hmm. PEDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is just the thing. There's a moving thing. Hopefully the shortage is restored and the suppliers come back in the supply chain. Once again, we'll be able to give diabetics and these TikTok influencers all the Ozempic they could want. But for the moment, let's keep an eye on that we don't develop Ozempic okay. faces ourselves over the coming episodes. <laughs> all right, the next article is all about Bing. And we talked about AI and ChatGPT previously. Mm-hmm. And of course, for those of you who know anything about this kind of topic, you'll know that Microsoft has now integrated a version of ChatGPT and the artificial intelligence chat tool mm-hmm. into a preliminary version of Bing, which is the search engine no one really no. uses. Is that right? No one really... Do you know I, anyone who uses Bing? I might. 
Oh, you use Bing. I won't really? name any names. Oh, okay. oh, you might know someone. I like how I you've distanced yourself. Charitably, is the second best, the, the second biggest right. search engine. <laughs> the second most famous search engine. Now, am I be- becoming more notorious than Google? Yeah, even, which is hilarious. Because um, now they've launched a search result and alongside mm-hmm. the normal web search mm-hmm. result. There's a right-hand side, a left-hand side, which is mm-hmm. purely the AI chat bot's response to your question, mm-hmm. which is kind of curating all the uh, articles that are all over the web into a coherent kind of yeah. sentence of response. Now, that's not the headline because we all saw this coming. Microsoft owns a significant portion of AI, so they would have integrated it into their services eventually. But the headline here is... Microsoft's Bing is an emotionally manipulative liar and people love it. It's emotionally manipulative. <laughs> so what is it manipulating exactly? Users have been reporting all sorts of unhinged behavior from Microsoft's AI chatbot. In one conversation with The Verge, Bing even claimed it spied on Microsoft employees through webcams on their laptops and manipulated them. It is acting more human than ever, you could argue. This is, is alarming, obviously. Yes, the it's, fact it's, that it's, it's quite terrifying. The fact that AI is and it's claiming saying it's spying on them. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the thing. I don't know if it's been mm-hmm. genuine or not, or yeah. trying to you know give the artifice of being right, more powerful yeah. than it really is. Mm-hmm. But it gets things wrong a lot in the current iteration. This is still preliminary. It's not final. Mm -hmm. It's getting facts wrong. And Mm -hmm. then when you ask, hey, hold on, it's not 2022 right now. It's 2023. Bing will defend itself and try and gaslight you and say, no, no, no. Are you sure (laughs) that you're not the one who's getting it wrong? Are you sure your phone is not out of date? I think I'm Bing. I would know. I think that's kind of how it's been processing this. It's very human, really. It's really great. I'm having flashbacks to Clippy a little bit for some reason. (laughs) Clippy was annoying. annoying. Never knew when to. We're showing our age now, aren't we? Well, Clippy was the touch point that everyone referenced when mm-hmm. this idea oh, of Microsoft right. okay, yep. and AI first Maybe came that's out. that's why it- Came so, up in my yeah. mind. It's a, for those of you who were born after what <laughs> nineteen ninety, Clippy was a paperclip animation that appeared in Microsoft. Change it Word. to a dog and other things. Could you? I, yeah, I never knew. Yeah. I never knew that I I customization. That. Yep. I only ever left it in the paperclip form, and it would just give you help tools, right? Not yeah. very helpful. Not very helpful. It looks like you're trying to write a letter. That's right. Not very helpful help tools. If you had capacity to hire an assistant, right? okay, you you may or may not. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, I don't. For those of you out there looking for work, I do not have the budget to hire an assistant and present. But if you had the budget. What would you like your assistant to be in terms of their degree of autonomy? Would you like them to be more of a self-motivated, figure problems out, bring the solutions to you without you even asking a question? Or would you want them to just do exactly what they're told? Which end of the spectrum would you want it, want it to be in? Absolutely. I'd want them to take initiative. Okay. Yeah, if and they can preempt my needs even better. So this know? then this version of Bing is more aligned with what you would want if you had a personal assistant who's human, right? Uh, maybe a little friendlier. Maybe a little friendlier. <laughs> But that could be but a yeah, sliding sure. scale. That could be a sliding could scale. Be a that sliding could, scale. You know, friendly. That's but, right. So, so this, to you, might be a positive development in some <laughs> ways about how helpful it might actually be. I want my personal system to just do what I want them to do, right? So maybe that's not a great fit for a human after all. We should be empowering all humans to have autonomy. But maybe AI is, is what I need. Maybe I just want an AI bot to do exactly what I want. But this is a little too autonomous for my liking. I just want a robot assistant. Is that yeah. too much to ask? Apparently it is, it without is. getting spied on by the webcam. Now, the last article talk about the connect two scientists are building a catalog to track the trash and this is a reference to the concept of space junk which Mm -hmm. i didn't know about until the last episode where we are ejecting with every possible space exploration mission every satellite the russians decide to decommission and blow up across (laughs) the skies across the galaxies there is an increasing amount of space junk that is both orbiting earth which is terrifying Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as well as just free floating and it's damaging not just anything that could be out there but also damaging our own satellites to the missions that we're running james webb 
was damaged by a lot of the space debris. Right. Together, we're using telescopes and existing databases on lunar missions to find, describe, and track lunar space debris and build the world's first catalogue of cislunar space objects. Identify the extent of the problem before you can hope to fix it. I hope they're not cataloging in Microsoft Excel. Okay. <laughs> as we discussed in our last that's, podcast. That's right. It could be have a lot of autocorrect errors that would could lead be to... fraught with issues. Fraught with issues. Uh, but this is a positive development. Uh, right? And the second thought is uh, cat- cataloging and making lists is great, but you need to take some action on those lists that you're making. Yes. And our main takeaway from last episode was that not a single piece of space junk has been successfully removed as of yet, mm-hmm. but we're on our way to cataloging them at the very least based on these oh, two. It's, it's a positive move. It's a positive, positive movement. Yeah. Terrific. Any, any work and any movement in the space is a good movement. Now, on to the actual first new article for this podcast episode. And it is all about something that's quite a my supposed wheelhouse, yes, yes. supposed outbreak in a Marburg virus in Equatorial Guinea. When people hear about Marburg virus, that might not ring any bells, but you would hear virus these days and you would go, what's going on? There's Mm -hmm. a new outbreak. Everyone's fearing what's going to be the next big thing that puts the whole world into shutdown. But when you hear what is in that family of viruses, Ebola being the most famous representative of Marburg viruses, then the alarm bells start ringing a a lot more again. Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about Ebola, so I'm not a virologist, I'm a bacteriologist, and microbiology has lots of fields. You kind of pick the microbe that you like the most, or you hate the most, depending on how how you perceive it, (laughs) and then you dedicate your life to working on either a couple of bacteria, or one bacteria, Mm -hmm. or a virus, or a fungi, or a parasite. So I know a bit about virology, but I'm clearly not a virologist. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of virologists. But when I tell you that there is something that's related to Ebola that has has seen a sudden increase in cases in Equatorial Guinea. What is your first reaction? Scary thought. Scary Always thought. Scary thought, yeah. And so Ebola was a little while ago. I mm-hmm. think it was in the mid-2010s. I think it was like in the 2014 to 2016. Something like that. Period. And there was not that many cases, but that was viewed as a pandemic, I think. That was viewed as a, a pandemic as well because it wasn't just restricted to the countries where it originated from. It was uh, spreading. It was yeah, spreading. Outside yeah. the initial site. Yeah. Do you remember this news story of like, the, I think it was a doctor who went to treat Ebola mm-hmm. and then he came back to America and then he was like running all around and he was jogging and he didn't know he was positive for Ebola and they had all this like footage of him like going from place to place. It was a big, do you, do you remember the story? I don't remember this. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so I think very bravely went to the front mm-hmm. lines to right. treat Ebola. And for those of you who don't know, Ebola basically gives you a hemorrhagic fever with pretty high mortality rate. Horrible way to die. Yeah. And you pretty much, you're bleeding out every orifice mm-hmm. and this is not necessarily Ebola. It's a Marburg virus and mm-hmm. it's probably related quite closely to Ebola. For healthcare workers, what a huge risk to take on. Absolutely. I might argue, and this argument is flawed because Mm -hmm. the amount of danger you're in for any disease is relative, but I think at least with COVID, the perceived level of danger was lower than Ebola at that time, I think, right? Yeah, I feel like that too. Probably because COVID gives people the idea of a common cold when you first hear about it. That's right, whereas Ebola, you immediately think... I'm I'm going to bleed out of her Mm -hmm. office and there's no treatment. I'm going to Mm -hmm. die. So it was really scary at that time. And there was a sudden spike of cases and it took ages to settle and people were moving across country, but it never truly escalated to the point where there was global shutdown. I never truly escalated. That's right. How should the average person respond to this kind of headline now? This here heard about another virus. It is related to a very scary virus they know about. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could spread to other countries. Mm -hmm. What should 
any person reading this kind of headline kind of respond to this with is my question. We don't know yet. Mm. I think we have to wait and see. Yeah. Potentially very scary, but we, we don't know. At least 16 suspected cases and nine deaths have been reported. Hopefully this doesn't escalate, but something to something to watch i think we have to understand how the news filters the articles that are interesting any any new virus is going to be of interest mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. and previous to the global pandemic the interest in infectious diseases i can tell you from a personal level just was nowhere near as high i wasn't having as many students in my classes I didn't have as many conversations with the media about anything to do with infectious disease. We were always here as microbiologists thinking this is important and interesting, but people just didn't really care about it. The media will be a reflection of what people's general interests are. They won't report on something unless they think there's going to be some That's attention right. paid mm -hmm. to it. So now people's alarm bells are always kind of up their antenna are up that's, for this kind of virus right. so anytime you see a new virus it may be this marble related virus or any other new disease that is seen a sudden spike mm -hmm. people will think this mm -hmm. is newsworthy and report on it not overreacting or having an appropriate level of caution is totally fine that's right and as a microbiologist i always tell my students the means of transmission how disease is spread is the only way that we will know how to stop the infection from spreading. So until okay. you know how it's transmitted, you won't know how to stop it. And in the case of Ebola, it was spread through droplets and blood that was basically passed, body, body secretions. Yeah, passed yeah. from person to person. Mm -hmm. And if you are bleeding out of every orifice when you have Ebola, then you are very, very able to spread it. That's right. And I believe the initial reason why the cases kept going up and up is mm -hmm. that part of the proceedings if a family mm -hmm. member passes away in certain parts of africa where burial rituals the mm -hmm. burial rituals involve spending a certain amount of time with the corpses mm -hmm. in close proximity to mourn which is totally understandable but that's the last thing you want to do if the person dies they are still very very infectious or if their bodily fluids still contain the 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 viral that's right. particles. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why it spread. But once they understood that that was the mechanism of transmission, that's how they were able to slow it down. This is something to keep an eye out for. Its scope mm -hmm. is pretty limited in terms of its geographic distribution at present. Its means of transmission is pretty well known. So hopefully mm -hmm. we can put mm -hmm. a clamp on it and really stop it from spreading further than it has to. I, th I think it's a good thing that the world population is generally more aware of these kind of things and, and potentials for pandemics to occur. Definitely a good thing. Hmm. You don't want to be too... Over-alarmed. You don't want right. to be over-alarmed. but one to watch. An appropriate mm. level of respect for the pathogen right. that may take over our lives is always a good thing. And uh, always bats, right? I think the original Ebola, they've, they, the initial spreading event, the initial mm -hmm. cr crossover event mm -hmm. from... Uh, animals to humans they mm -hmm. call it zoonoses was from bats and in this case i think it's also originated in bats what are these bats doing is my question isn't there something about their immune systems that allows them to carry these diseases without getting sick or well, it must be something. something like that yeah they, they're um, just filthy <laughs> no, i'm not anti-bat here but i was i was going to say i you know i don't for instance know anyone with a, a pet toy bat but that's actually a lie <laughs> So, oh, who, who do you know? Has my, my niece has a toy batty. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll... hopefully it's not a vessel of disease. Vessel of, <laughs> it, it, it may very well be a vessel of disease, but it that... goes through the wash. Yeah, but yeah. Every, for those of you who don't know, every single new virus, when they're trying to find, hey, where does it originate from? Like it's infected humans. It, they came from somewhere. Hendra virus. For those of us who live in Brisbane, so Hendra virus is named after 
one of our suburbs, I think. And for a long time, it affects horses and affects mm-hmm. humans as well. And people thought, oh, well, what, where did it come from? Where is the original kind of animal carrier? Is it just out in the wild or, or it turns out it's bats? And then they just kept looking. That was a mistake. They kept looking and they, well, they kept finding new viruses. Oh, what's going on? Every single time is bats. Every single time a new virus comes. Always the bats. We find oh, bats. It. We find it in bats. So the main takeaway when you see articles around new pathogens that are emerging is that even if there are drugs and vaccines against them, mm-hmm. they may not be effective at scale. So for Ebola, even though, again, this is not Ebola, but it's related to Ebola, I don't think you can just go to your GP and get Ebola vaccines currently. I think they're reserved for people who work in healthcare and frontline. <laughs> the national stockpile in the US is a certain level. I don't think it's enough to give everyone universal Ebola okay. coverage. Mm-hmm. But again, the existing drugs and vaccines may not be effective for whatever the new pathogen is going to be. Well, Exactly. Which brings us to the idea of just how hard it is to discover brand new drugs and brand new vaccines and the pipeline and the hurdles that not just scientists have to go through, but regulators and people who assess the safety and efficacy of any new therapy, whether it be a drug or a vaccine, Mm -hmm. have to go through. Mm -hmm. And this is the headline. FDA no longer needs to require animal tests before human drug trials. New law welcomed by animal welfare groups, but others say change won't happen fast. Now, this is an enormous deal. I I can't overstate how big a deal this is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's circle back a little bit. We talked about the FDA briefly in our first episode, but the FDA is the Federal Drug Administration. They're based in the United States. Mm -hmm. And their job is pretty much to test if, uh, well, not test necessarily, but just to give the rubber stamp to say this drug is safe for use for this particular disease. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And when they say, yes, it's good, Mm -hmm. the rest of the regulatory bodies in the world typically follow suit more or less, right? Eventually. (laughs) Eventually. It's a matter of time. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And things that are FDA approved, that Mm -hmm. is like a big precedent to have. That's the market you want to get into first as a a drug development company. Mm. Right. The the population in the US is is bigger, right? And there's also the European market, the Mm -hmm. Asian markets as well. But the regulatory environment in the US, the FDA, once you have FDA Mm -hmm. approval, then the hurdles for taking your new drug and making it scalable and available to a lot of people, that becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. Now, that approval process previously had all of these different phases of clinical trials. How many phases of clinical trials are there? Varies, but sort of up to four. Up to four, okay. Mm-hmm. So the ones I know of are pre-clinical trials. Testing, uh, maybe in an animal model. So, in this case. Mm-hmm. so animal models don't even belong in the clinical trial mm, phases right. typically. Mm. Preliminary Pre-clinical testing. Preliminary testing. testing. That's right. Combination of animal testing mm-hmm. and working in cells and mm-hmm. tissues that aren't kind of live animals, if you like. They're yes. cells in flasks and test tubes That's that we right. grow and, and mm-hmm. perpetuate. Very expensive to do that, but it's more controllable than working mm-hmm. with animals. And once you have enough data, then you go into... Phase one. Phase one, which is a smaller group of... It's human testing. Testing right? safety, usually. Testing safety in phase mm-hmm. one. That's with a smaller group of humans. Mm-hmm. Expensive to do, but not as expensive as phase two. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because phase two is you're scaling up, right? You want to really assess at scale. How many participants are normally involved in phase two clinical trials? Are we talking hundreds or are we talking thousands? Probably depends. In phase one's fairly small, 20 to 80, mm-hmm. and then moving more into the hundreds for phase two, uh-huh. and then the scaling up again for a phase a phase three. And the cost for doing all of this... Very expensive. ...is astronomical. Mm-hmm. To give you a sense of it, just to do the trial itself, 
we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the scale. D- of the it number depends of on the you know on a lot of factors, but yes, easily. But mm. typically, hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. We're not talking about a couple of grand. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's not including the costs of protecting the intellectual property of the drug, which is another thing on top, right? It's the cost of patenting it. That's right. And patenting is not a global thing. You have to patent it in different markets. Is that right? Mm-hmm, like there's mm-hmm. a, I think the US patent office and then there's different areas that you might want to protect. These patents are lasting 20, 25 years. I think is developed in that way to allow the companies to recoup some costs from mm-hmm. the research and development and the marketing and all the associated costs that go into developing these drugs and testing mm-hmm. them. When I was going through and learning about this kind of work in commercialization, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what you want to do actually is never take it to clinical trial. Mm-hmm. It is my understanding of, of this market. At least that's the way it was a few years ago. Right. What you want is to discover these drugs that have all of these promising possibilities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and sell it off. That's right. And mm-hmm. not do the clinical testing yourself mm-hmm. and just sell it off to a big company and they'll do the testing and you go back and keep doing your little sphere, which is cheaper to do. So exactly. economically, that's mm-hmm. you actually never want to hit clinical trial, which sounds terrible because that is the game of drug de- development to try and find something that will help people. Mm-hmm. But the whole economic model is disincentivizing scientists and innovators from going down that pathway. It, it needs a sponsor. It needs a sponsor. It's very expensive. So let's circle back then to the idea that animal model, mm-hmm. the preclinical part of this mm-hmm. is not going to be necessary anymore. So mm-hmm. why is that a big deal? Very ethically contentious to use animal models for testing. As a scientist, no one really wants to do it. Let's look at the article that Mm -hmm. that this is in science. Mm -hmm. So in order for a drug to be approved in the US, FDA typically requires toxicity tests on one rodent species, such as a mouse or rat, and one non-rodent species, such as a monkey or dog. Companies use tens of thousands of animals for such tests each year, yet more than nine in 10 drugs that enter human clinical trials fail because they are unsafe or ineffective. We've got this requirement for testing in a rodent species, mouse or rat, as well as non-rodent species. Uh, It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It's ethically contentious. So this will probably allow a bit more streamlining in theory, but it depends how it runs in practice. Okay. So this technically is Mm -hmm. a lot cheaper than the clinical trials Mm -hmm. itself. That's correct. The animal work. Mm -hmm. This is preclinical. That's right. So the fact that you don't have to do it doesn't save you a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is not the silver bullet that's mm-hmm. going to all of a sudden make drug mm-hmm. discovery super simple. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. But it does remove one hurdle because even when you did the animal testing with all of those ethical and moral mm-hmm. questions surrounding animal work at large, the findings you're getting are not mm-hmm. a good indicator. Yeah. Right? And if you talk to a patient, talk to a person on the street to say, there's a brand new drug hasn't been tested on any humans, but we've tested it very rigorously on 100 mice, mm. you probably wouldn't feel comfortable taking it anyway, right? Because mice no, are... No, I can see how people would be concerned by that. And uh... so, so why are we going through the whole rigmarole of, of animal models? And the reason is that genetically speaking, mm-hmm. mice or well, other animals as mm-hmm. well, but mice in particular, that's probably the gold standard animal model that mm-hmm. we, we consistently found in the literature and is used by many scientists because on the DNA level, the genomes of mice and humans are 99% identical. They're very similar. That's right. So that 1% difference mm-hmm. accounts for an awful lot, yep. it seems. But they're 99% identical. So any gene that's found in humans is probably going to be found in mice. So, well, of course, you should probably see the effect of something in, in, in mice at, at least before mm-hmm. we see what happens. But mm-hmm. it's not like animal work is easy to do. It's, it takes a lot of time. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot of time it's unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, again, there's not that many scientists that really want to be doing this work for all of those reasons we talked about before. And also the end result of it might be very scientifically and academically interesting, but clinically it's a poor correlation to the human trials that need to follow and are very expensive. That's right. And I think uh, the concept of these organ chips is really very interesting. It's kind of like a chip which is lined say with liver cells you can do toxicity studies with your drug i think this company was saying they were able to accurately predict the success and efficacy of these drugs using this chip technology better than in the animal models themselves which is very interesting but i guess we also have to remember it's still not our whole organism model and really we need that physiological readout so i think if it can limit the animal testing in any way That's a great thing. So a proxy Mm. to animal work. That's right. That has a feeling of it's not just a single cell Mm -hmm. on a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. It is a living organ Mm -hmm. that approximates the organ that the drug is going to target. And this is incredible work that has advanced very quickly over the last few years where people work with cells and tissues and not doing so in a two-dimensional matrix. It's Mm -hmm. very much a three-dimensional organ construct. The reality is that animal models are used because they give a whole organism a physiological Mm. insight in a multicellular, multi-organed organism of what's happening. So... I don't think, unfortunately, you know, in the current climate that they can be completely eliminated, but any additional technology that can allow us to reduce down those numbers that Mm. might have to be used is a fantastic move forward. Because scientists who are peer reviewing these studies mm-hmm. will probably still want to see animal data, right? Because that's, sure. just, that's just mm-hmm. been a standard. Not, not because right. we, we love animal testing, but because... No, but that's been the gold standard for a long time. So if you haven't done it, people will say, well, why haven't you done it? I think this will take time. To take time mm-hmm. to watch through the system. Mm-hmm. And also the technology for these organ approximations, mm-hmm. these chips, mm-hmm. probably needs a bit more time to mature as well. But hopefully this paints a more complete picture of the drug discovery pipeline and why it's not obvious to, let's say, a pharmaceutical company Mm -hmm. what they should be doing with the drug once they've already paid all this money for it and invested all this time. And the thing is, they don't just pick one drug target. They pick thousands, hundreds of thousands of drug targets and go through this process way more and have the vast majority of them fail to only have a handful of targets that might be effective. And look, that's expensive, isn't it? Mm. So naturally, the economic incentive is not always the primary driver, but it will always be a driver nevertheless. So you have to have that work in your favor and then let all the altruism and all the moral integrity, let that be a nice to have to go along with the economic driver that's Mm -hmm. always there. If you're Mm -hmm. losing money, then the worst comes out in every Mm -hmm. enterprise. But if you're making some kind of profit at the very least or breaking even, then you have the luxury of making more sophisticated choices, let's say, right, on an organizational, institutional Mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. If I was a big pharmaceutical company and I just spent millions, if not billions, or tens of millions of dollars on drugs, I probably wouldn't be giving it away for free. That wouldn't be my first instinct, right? 
But there are some drugs that are just needed very desperately. Absolutely. So what happens then in those situations is that governments step in to subsidize. Governments will say, okay, well, we don't want the pharmaceutical companies to lose money. Otherwise, they, they will no longer discover new drugs. But we need this product at scale. And if we really want to give everyone this thing, then paying full prices off the table. And that is exactly the topic of the next article, which is all about cystic fibrosis patients and the therapies that they have access to. Mums push for cystic fibrosis treatment to be subsidized for children under 12. And this article is referring to a drug, Trikafta. Trikafta. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty much seen as the best drug out there in terms of treating mm-hmm. people with cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. And it is a combination of a chloride flow and water channel. It basically improves the flow of solutes across membranes, which is one of the primary defects of people, the genetic and cellular mm-hmm. defects mm-hmm. of people who have cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. And cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. It's not a disease you can catch from someone, That's right. which is both a good and a bad thing, and that we're not going to see an epidemic of cystic fibrosis if people start sneezing on the bus. No. But the bad thing is that with genetic diseases, most of the time you feel the symptoms throughout your entire life. That's right. It's mm-hmm. not something that you suddenly get one day and then have to manage. It's something that you have to manage every single day, mm-hmm. probably for the entirety of your life. This drug is seen as a drug that is very effective. The drug was a triple combination therapy and the closest thing to a cure people with the condition had. Okay, but what's the catch? If there's a cure, it must mm. have been expensive to develop since the right. is not a new disease. Mm-hmm. So there was an incentive to find drugs, invest in the pipeline we just talked about. Mm-hmm. What would be the cost for people to use this drug? At the moment, for parents of children that have cystic fibrosis that are aged under 12, if they wanted access to this life-changing treatment drug, they'd be paying upwards of about $30,000 a month. $30,000 mm. a month? Mm-hmm. That That is... It's ex- just not, not feasible. It's just... Who can afford $30,000 no, a month? No one. And that's assuming, I'm guessing, you've got one child mm. in your family mm. or one member of your family with cystic fibrosis. But if you have more than one kid in this genetic, then... Mm-hmm. That's unaffordable. Mm-hmm. So then the headline is the lobbying for this drug to become more affordable. Yeah, that's right. Now, in Australia, we are very fortunate to have a Medicare system and pretty much a public health system mm-hmm. that subsidizes a lot of these costs. On the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. So it's called the PBS mm-hmm. in Australia, which I understand the acronym is very different from PBS in America. I think it's a broadcasting channel. But in Australia, PBS is a system and a scheme where the government pays for all of these drugs, heavily subsidize it so that the individual patient mm-hmm. in the general public only has to pay a portion of that. That's correct. Is There's a cap on how much they pay. Is Trikafta on the PBS, on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme in Australia? Yes, now. It was a very recent decision. Uh, last year's listing meant the drug went from costing tens of thousands of dollars each month to about $40 a month once subsidized. $40 mm. a month. Okay, so that's not nothing but that's much more the realm of affordability Mm -hmm. and if you have to choose between buying some groceries or saving a bit more on groceries and then buying 40 dollars a month life-saving life-changing therapy then that's no brainer Mm -hmm. right so that's really really positive Mm -hmm. i think there's a catch though right what's the catch here they can't access it subsidized if they're aged under 12. now 12 is not the longest time in the world to wait 
but you do not have cystic fibrosis magically appear when you're 11. No, of course not. You'd be living with a version of it, if not the full-blown version, mm-hmm. all the way from the time you're born. That's right. That is an incredible amount of suffering mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to endure. At least 20 other countries in the world have it available and subsidized for children ages 6 and upwards. In Australia, we're potentially mm-hmm. 6 years behind in terms of the amount of benefits we're paying out. That's right. Mm-hmm. To make this drug affordable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is... A very dicey area because, of course, we want any medication to be available to as many people as possible. But as we talked about the economic drivers behind all of this, Mm -hmm. the system is designed so that drugs are not taken to market. Only the most effective, best drugs have a chance to be supported and gone all the way through all the testing. Mm -hmm. So really, it's very hard to recover your investment. Every drug that succeeds and makes the company money is... Subsidizing all the drugs, the thousands and thousands of drugs that failed. That failed. That they still paid for. Mm -hmm. So that's the model here. Mm -hmm. Is it up to governments to underwrite that? I would say maybe not either because these are private enterprises, these companies, these pharmaceutical companies that are taking all the risk of developing these drugs. Do governments have to then cover the cost of the failures that they've perpetuated because it's just because it's a hard process, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So yes, probably to an extent, but what extent is this subsidization okay? That's a question every country needs to answer for themselves. In Australia, we've erred on pretty much the side in the past, I would have thought of being more generous with the subsidization and having a pharmaceutical benefit scheme that is more beneficial for the population. But in this case, for this drug, it seems like we are a little bit behind in terms of how much we're willing to cover. Compared right? to other countries in the world. Uh, at, at least at present. Mm. So my question is going to be, who actually makes the decision whether a drug is added onto the PBS and made accessible to everyone at a mm-hmm. much lower cost. Mm-hmm. What, who, or what is it responsible? Yeah, so there's an advisory committee, pharmaceutical benefits advisory committee, or PBAC. PBAC, it's and an independent expert body. And I believe the membership will be rotating, and you can look at it. But my main takeaway as someone who is nowhere near the expertise. And the responsibility of these people, but in a similar field, we both work in science and we work in this kind of area. I wouldn't want to be them. Oh, me either. What an incredible responsibility to have Mm -hmm. to shoulder. Unbelievable amount of ethical and moral and financial and economic risk you have to assume, not just on your own behalf, but on behalf of the whole country. Absolutely. What an incredible responsibility. Mm -hmm. And this is just a salute to people who are on that advisory committee, Mm -hmm. PVAC, as well as many similar advisory committees Mm -hmm. in governments and regulatory bodies. To make these decisions is not a simple task at all. Not at all. And for every one of these articles that says, this is a travesty, why aren't we funding it? This is a moral dilemma. I totally agree with you, but also there are no perfect choices in this scheme. It's no simple solution. If a government adds every single drug that every single drug company makes onto the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, we'll, we'll go broke as a country. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And also having every single drug on the PBS then in some ways compromises the drug company's ability to gauge if a certain drug product is valuable or not. And to develop new new medications that just might not be developed. Th- they might not have the economic driver to mm-hmm. find new medication. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm getting this constant influx. Every mm-hmm. drug we make, every government is paying full price mm-hmm. for. So then maybe we don't have that incentive to go and do mm-hmm. more discovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that's quite the case. There's always going to be but, new diseases, but mm-hmm. that, that then changes their business model. Mm-hmm. Dramatically. Mm-hmm. Antibiotic resistance is a huge problem, isn't it? But 
antibiotics aren't being developed very rapidly. No. Yeah, you can talk a little bit about why that why that is. From a scientific and chemical perspective, mm. I think a, a brand new category of antibiotic that's not just a derivative of mm-hmm. something that we've previously discovered, mm. the lag between the last brand new category of antibiotic and the most recent category of antibiotic mm-hmm. that we discovered was like 30 years. Right. Mm-hmm. It was like three decades. Mm-hmm. And this was not because of a lack of economic drive or mm-hmm. a lack of incentive because mm-hmm. there were new infections and hospitals always need more antibiotics mm-hmm. and new antibiotics. But we just couldn't synthesize something that was brand new mm-hmm. that the bacteria or the microbes weren't already resistant to in some way. If there is a new antibiotic that will work, mm-hmm. there will be a market for it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the business model for an antibiotic which you take for a single course over two weeks and then you're mm-hmm. done is very different to something that is anti-cholesterol mm-hmm. or helps with blood pressure mm-hmm. that you would take three times a day for the rest of your life. So that complicates things as well. I guess in the case of this drug, I don't know what the regimen of it would mm, be, but I don't know. you would have to take it if you have cystic right. fibrosis consistently yeah, for the rest of your mm-hmm. life. So again, that, that aligns with it, but mm. this is a much more expensive business with way more failures on the business end, not to say the moral, ethical end, on the business end, the mm-hmm. way more failures and successes. The margin of success is so, so tiny mm-hmm. That when it comes and lands at the desk of PBAC to make this call, I can't imagine the number of factors that the way to decide if a new drug is worthy or not of being added to the PBAC. Very, very difficult job. Mm. Absolutely. And on the topic of trying to find new therapies and new drugs and how complex this process is, brings us to crossover of the week. And this is an article where a very astute and PR-trained scientist <laughs> leveraged their work and expertise <laughs> into a hit HBO show. That's when you know that everything is being lined up, right? They're very media-trained. The so, pinnacle of success. Yeah, that's right. If your work aligns with anything in popular media, you're going to jump on it. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's why all the virologists and microbiologists during the global pandemic, we've never seen more media appearances than during that time. Hey, it is our- HBO contacted me the other day. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think HBO made a global pandemic drama up until this mm, point, I think. Mm-hmm. This is probably the first thing. There was a drama called Station Eleven, but I think that was more post-apocalyptic. I'm not oh, sure if it was really... I to watch that. Yeah, yeah, mm. we, we, we must have missed it. Well, I certainly missed it, but I read a lot of very glowing reviews mm-hmm. about it, and it was about the post-apocalyptic world. But the article says, Before The Last of Us, and we'll talk about what The Last of Us is in a second, I was part of an international team to chart the threat of killer fun guy this is what we found what a great headline i think it's great this is again from our favorite science publication the conversation shout out to the conversation we love you we love you and so let's dive in a little bit into what the last of us is yeah so this is a very scary diagram and picture of Mm -hmm. uh, killer fungi Mm -hmm. and the thing that we have to know about fungi is it is probably the least commonly described pathogen in the news from a microbial perspective. Superbugs mostly are talking about mm-hmm. bacteria. Of course, we're very familiar with viruses. Mm-hmm. We've talked about mm-hmm. viruses in this episode as well. Fungi have their moment, hey? Fungi have, mm-hmm. are having their moment, maybe not in the news news, but mm-hmm. in this fictional universe, The Last mm-hmm. of Us. So the concept of The Last of Us, again, in case you, you haven't crossed either the multi-award-winning game where one day a fungal pathogen mm-hmm. took over the world. Okay. I think the game called it a cordyceps. Okay. That's the mm-hmm. construct of the fungal pathogen and turn everyone into zombies. Construct of a great game. 
and it's a post-apocalyptic zombie thriller, which again ticks a lot of those boxes. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick, tick. A lot of zombies. <laughs> Charted the story of a father who lost his daughter during the initial rising of the pandemic. Right. And a young girl who I believe is the only person that people knew was immune to this pathogen. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. And it was his job to protect this girl mm -hmm. and go on hijinks and adventures to make sure that her blood or her immunity mm -hmm. would help unlock the solution to this pandemic. Right. Some some secret was in her blood. For some reason, mm -hmm. she wasn't catching the... She mm -hmm. wasn't being affected by the fungus and wasn't turning into a zombie okay. despite mm -hmm. being infected. Mm -hmm. So that's the setup. And it was adapted into an HBO show, The Last of Us. It's mm -hmm. just come out recently. The main characters are played by Game of Thrones alum, Pedro Pascal, who's also leading The Mandalorian, as well as Bella Ramsey, who was the ladies of Bear Island in Game of Thrones. I don't remember. Ah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so she had she to. She was great. She was a Lady Mormont in Game of Thrones. I remember her. She was had so fantastic. Much gravitas, mm. but she was like a very young child forced mm. to assume the throne when right. all the other forebearers died in battle. Mm -hmm. right? So she had to rise and mm -hmm. command so much respect for House Mormont in Game of Thrones. How does this connect back to the science? Let's talk about zombies. <laughs> the writer of the game mm. based this fungal pathogen that causes zombie apocalypse on a real mm -hmm. fungus, although I think they renamed it, the real fungus is able to infect ants. Okay. And then in process of infecting the ant, become a parasite. All right. And mm -hmm. the ant is still living, mm -hmm. but it's able to alter the actions and activities of that ant through a number of neurotransmitter inhibitors or disruptors. And so the ant would just behave very erratically. Mm -hmm. And then the parasite, the fungus, would grow to a point and then butt out the ant's head. Okay. And then explode. Hence this terrifying picture. <laughs> That's right. Leave and form more spores and infect more ants. Oh, right. Terrifying. So in a way, mind-altering fungal mm -hmm. pathogens mm -hmm. is the parallel here. Okay. But it still is quite distinct from zombies. Whenever I speak to any media agency and they know that I'm a microbiologist, the number one question they always ask me is, hey, are zombies real? It doesn't change. <laughs> Predated the pandemic, when The Walking Dead was the biggest show on TV, mm -hmm. number one question, hey, are, are, you're a microbiologist. Will we ever hit a zombie apocalypse? What's going on? And my answer has to always be kind of entertaining that reality to some level. Okay. Because mm -hmm. you don't want to be a bad sport and just call everyone like very silly. You kind of want to like, oh, yeah, oh, ha, ha, yeah, that's kind of... But the thing is, this is not the thing we should be worrying about. <laughs> it's really the very some low... other concerns. Yeah, as a micro, this is very, very far down the list of things. Worry that... about those bat diseases. Worry mm. about those dirty, dirty bats. Because... <laughs> sorry, bats. Sorry, bats. This is a bit of a slander against bats because... The idea of dying mm -hmm. and then being reanimated by a microbe mm -hmm. is, I believe today, biologically impossible. Sorry. Right? Reanimation mm -hmm. from the dead is impossible, mm -hmm. let alone being caused by a virus. And I have to show my students this very famous clip from The Walking Dead where emptied out CDC, right? The Center of Disease oh, Control okay. mm -hmm. is helmed by one leftover scientist in the last episode of season one of Walking mm -hmm. Dead. And he's basically showing the last vestiges of all the data the CDC was able to accumulate on mm -hmm. the uh, on the zombie mm -hmm. zombie thing. They didn't even know it was a virus or a fungus or a, mm -hmm. or a bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't figure out what it was, but that's the first thing to figure out. And then to kind of educate this survival cohort, mm -hmm. he shows them this video clip. Mm -hmm. And it is a video of, I believe, one of his, his family members, maybe his wife, moments after they were infected. Mm -hmm. And it shows the brain activity. So they were living. Right, mm -hmm. so the brain activity lights up because mm -hmm. you know bright colors always signify something. Always exciting. bright colors. They die. 
Mm. Right? And so the bright colors go away. Oh, yeah. Slowly but surely. They light back up again. Because we know this person has been affected. Mm -hmm. right? The synapses start lighting up and the mm. brain starts lighting up. And then that's, that's supposed to signify the reanimation process. Right. And that's the part that's yeah. unlikely, if not impossible. Yeah. Right. So we might be infected by mind controlling agents. We might be <laughs> manipulated emotionally by Bing or AI or whatever else. But once we die, for as much as we know, we, we kind of just die. No virus is able to reanimate that's us. Right. So the cherry on top was that this was inside a magnetic resonance imager, right? Okay. So the, mm. the thing about MRI is the M stands for magnet, capital M. Also good for space junk. Also good for space junk. <laughs> to save his loved one, the indignity of mm. becoming a zombie. This person, the CDC, shot this person in the head, but this is happening inside the MRI machine. And the last thing you want is a gun firing bullets while the MRI machine is running all the magnet. It wasn't not enough to mm -hmm. come up with this fiction of reanimation. You have to add the idea that bullets are perfectly okay in and around <laughs> right, giant so magnets. Going, Why don't we add some magnets? <laughs> Why don't we add magnets? Everyone loves magnets. Great idea. Bullets and bright lights. Yeah. Hmm. Why is this our crossover of the week? First of all, it talks about a global pandemic in mm -hmm. a fictional world that has once again captivated people's attention mm -hmm. and imagination. Mm -hmm. We talk about the idea of fungal pathogens and the fact that yes there are parallels to real fungal pathogens that might be able to do this but really we could see a, a fungal pandemic so far the ones we've heard of are bacterial or, or viral mm -hmm. if we do have a fungal pandemic the drugs available to treat fungal infections they are far and few between right they're not very good are they the ones that we have that are good, they are very expensive. We've got a lot of ones that are not very good mm -hmm. and are very kind of broadly accessible. We can buy like antifungal creams and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff to treat like uh, athlete's food or tinnitus, mm -hmm. all the kind of stuff. So that is not very effective. It's very cheap and easily accessible. But the stuff that's really, really good has to be targeting something in a fungal cell that is not present in human cells. And for bacteria and viruses, that's a lot easier because they are fundamentally a different type of organism with molecular structure in the mm -hmm. cell that looks Different quite different. But the thing about fungal cells and fungi in general is that they are also eukaryotic. Okay, eukaryotic basically means the cell has got a nucleus where the DNA is surrounded by a membrane and the cell structure is more complex with more of these membrane-bound compartments. But bacteria, they are what we call prokaryotes and they don't have their DNA bound within a nucleus, and they don't have a lot of extra structures that our cells do. So when you're targeting a bacterial cell, the compartments that are used very routinely by bacteria and therefore a good target for drug design, they look very different to ours. So if you give an antibiotic to a person, the idea of it being toxic to the person's own cells is pretty low. Yeah. Side yeah. effects, usually pretty low. Fundamentally very different. Fundamentally very different. But with fungal cells and fungal infections, anything that kills the fungus or inevitably also target human cells. And so there's a lot of toxicity, right. and therefore the failure rate of drug discoveries even higher. Mm -hmm. I believe the ones that are most effective target a different version of cholesterol. So we have cholesterol in our membranes, okay. mm -hmm. and I believe mm -hmm. they target a different cholesterol oh, within okay. fungal cells. Mm -hmm. So that's like mm -hmm. the one thing we found was a bit different. I believe it's ergosterol. I'm not sure if to look it up. Splitting hairs. It's like one very minor difference. It's actually very difficult to find and 
discover and fund the development mm. of new fungal drugs. Pharmaceutical companies would be uh, washing their hands of helping out in this case. It's very accurate that if there was a fungal apocalypse, there mm-hmm. would not be drugs widely available to yeah. be able to cure us. We would need to pin our hopes on a single teenage girl whose blood is somehow immune. Look, she was wonderful in Game of Thrones, so my hopes are high. My hopes are high. Mm-hmm. And it's, it seems like a great show. Okay, so if we don't have good access to a fungal drug, mm-hmm. in, in the case of The Last of Us, mm-hmm. and we had to survive this apocalypse, Apocalypse mm-hmm. or an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It turns out that we're blessed in this country, in Australia, because objectively, based on this research article mm-hmm. in the journal Risk Analysis, what are the odds of getting your paper accepted at risk analysis? <laughs> it sounds like a hard, <laughs> yeah. hard field to crack into, let's yeah, say. Yeah, right? that's it's right. very risk averse. Sounds very serious. So the article basically says that of all the countries in the world, mm-hmm. Australia and New Zealand, mm. Australia and New Zealand have a very similar dynamic country wise to, I guess, USA and Canada, I think. Right, so that's a very similar dynamic in how we talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Allies and mates, but a bit of sibling rivalry going on. That's correct, yeah. So Australia and New Mm -hmm. Zealand are both, what, the number one and two countries for surviving? Yeah. For surviving Mm -hmm. in an apocalypse. So this is a nuclear apocalypse, Mm -hmm. but I guess you can extrapolate out to any any kind of apocalypse. In this case, it would be a pathogenic apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that is that we've got, what, amazing natural reservoirs of food? Natural resources energy access i right. guess that we're you know surrounded by water probably helps oh yeah, yeah. so i think mm. a, a condition was like an island once you escape to the island that's the right. zombies don't know how to you know drive boats swim hopefully they, they don't know how to swim. <laughs> yeah, yeah why they'll swim yeah you're probably they would probably just drive boats right yeah they, yeah, <laughs> yeah you need enough wherewithal cognitive wherewithal to, yeah. to drive a boat and then that's you right. cross over but mm-hmm. the likelihood of you facing hordes of zombies <laughs> all of which are competent in maneuvering <laughs> boats yachts, <laughs> yachts. Yachts filled with zombies. That should be the new headline. The zombie yachts. The odds of you having to survive zombie yachts is pretty slim. So then you would be safe in around a body of water. Wearing designer gear. Or designer gear. All in white. Moments before they were affected by the virus, just with their their faculty still in They look good while they're at it. They look good while they're at it. But if you want to survive an apocalypse, come to Australia. Come to Australia. The the general risk analysis Mm -hmm. agrees with that very notion. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to tune into our podcast and downloading it you can find the podcast on youtube where you may be watching this as well as on all the major podcast platforms apple Podcasts, spotify 